brief word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for another opportunity to come together and to study your word today. Lord, you've, you've restrained evil and you have given us everything we need to be here. Transportation and food and a building and Bibles and all of this. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would dedicate this time to you and that we would seek to understand your word better. And we pray that you would send your spirit here and that you would work among us so that we would understand uh, what the scripture has to say to us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. So go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Um, The specific verses is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So we're getting pretty pretty far into chapter 4 here. And just uh, by way of review, as y'all are turning there, you'll remember that sort of the main theme of the book of Hebrews that we've been bringing up and repeating over and over again throughout this series is that Jesus is superior to everything, and why would you want anything else? Jesus is superior to everything, why on earth would you ever want anything else? And so what the author of Hebrews has done for us is he has been walking us through various people, various offices that Jesus is superior to. Okay, So the first one, if you remember, is that Jesus is superior to the prophets, That's how the author of Hebrews opens up the epistle. Jesus is superior to the prophets. And then he goes on and says that Jesus is superior to the angels. And then last week, we treated the subject that Jesus is superior to Moses. Or at least we started to talk about that because today in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to build on that theme. That Jesus is superior to Moses. And he's going to do that in a few ways. The first way that he's going to do that today is he's going to show us some contrasts and some comparisons between Israel and the church. And then what he's going to do is he's going to tell us about the rest that's available for God's people. And so between those two things, what our author wants us to understand from his text today is he wants us to see sort of the the continuity of redemptive history. Uh, That is, he wants us to see that the message of salvation for Israel in the Old Testament and for the church in the New Testament is the same. That when Israel was going, you know, coming out of Egypt, going through the desert, going to the promised land, that when they were doing that, when they were looking to go to Canaan, that even Israel themselves recognized that Canaan was not their final home. That Canaan was not the land ultimately that they were looking forward to. But rather, as the Hebrews is going to show, the city, the land, the rest that Israel was looking to is the same rest that we as Christians look forward to. The same rest that is brought about by Christ. Okay, So that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to grasp in this chapter. So... Let's look at how he, uh, how he does this for us, how he un- unpacks this truth. Let me read for us here. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read through verse 13. So beginning with verse 1 here, chapter 4. Therefore, 
While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, there is a, uh, a lot of material to cover in those verses, and uh, we're going to, again, break it down under two headings. Okay? The first heading is in the first five verses here, and this is where our author is comparing Israel with the New Testament church, with his readers. And we're going to see the comparisons are pretty similar. Right? They're pretty stark, and that's because he's trying to show that it's the same thing. But then the second thing he's going to do is he's going to elaborate on the rest that is offered the people of God. And he's going to show how that rest was the same for Israel as it is for Christians. And so basically what our author wants to do here is he wants to use Israel as an example of how his readers should be. See, this is actually somewhat opposite of what he did in chapter 3. Do you remember in chapter 3 he uses Israel as a bad example? And specifically, he's talking about the Israelites who were in the desert, who God let out of Egypt. And then when God did all of these wonderful things for them, he provided manna for them in the wilderness. He gave them water and all of this, that they responded to God's gracious gifts in unbelief. And so last week we saw the author of Hebrews says, don't be like those Israelites. Right? They did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. They did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. But now in this chapter, our author is going to use the Israelites in a different way. Speaking of the later Israelites that did enter Canaan. And he's going to show that they were actually looking forward to the same thing that we as Christians look forward to. All right. So let's, uh, let's get into this a little bit here. Firstly, uh, Israel and the church. There are here in, in the beginning of chapter 4, and if you sort of like back up a little bit into chapter 3, 
there are five really amazing comparisons between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And this is, again, our author's trying to show we've got the same thing going on here. So, firstly, Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt just like God's people are delivered from slavery to sin. This is why our author wants to use uh, the story of Israel coming out of the Exodus. He wants to show that the, the, the picture of the Exodus, the picture of Israel being brought out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, is a kind of big picture of the salvation that God provides for all of his people. Because Israel didn't, didn't primarily need to be saved from Egypt. That was, of course, a bad thing. They, they needed to be saved from Egypt, obviously, so that they could go to the land that God promised Abraham. But that's not the ultimate salvation that they needed. The ultimate salvation they needed was delivery from bondage to sin, just like all of God's people throughout all of time. All right, so that's the first comparison that Hebrews brings out here. The second thing that he shows, this is in verse 6, is he says that Israel was endangered by turning away from God in the wilderness. And he relates that to his recipients because they also are in the same kind of danger. And this is something we talked about last week. Israel received the great heavenly food from God, namely the manna in the wilderness. And in the very next chapter of Exodus, they respond to God with unbelief because they don't have water. And we talked about that. And so our author says, yeah, just like Israel did that, so you guys are in danger of doing this too. If you respond to the great gifts that God has given to you, his word, his sacrament, whatever, with unbelief, then you're going to be guilty of doing the same thing that Israel did. And you're not going to enter God's rest. So you can see he's drawing these very tight comparisons and parallels here. Third thing he says, this is in verse 2 of chapter 4, is he says that the gospel was preached to Israel and that the gospel was preached to the church. Now, if you, if you look at the text, I'm looking at my ESV here. It says in verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them. Right? Now, that's a perfectly fine translation there to, to talk about good news, because that's what the gospel means. But if you look at the Greek text, it's, it's the same word that's used for gospel. So it's not just that God was preaching you know, general good news, but specifically he's preaching the evangelion. He's preaching the gospel to Israel. So Israel received the message of the gospel just like the New Testament church receives the message of the gospel. So again, it's not as if Israel received a totally different message of salvation than we do as New Testament Christians. No, Israel got the same gospel. They got the same message of Christ. Now, it wasn't as you know, expanded upon or as detailed or as clear as it is in the New Testament. But it's still the same gospel of Christ. And we talked about that a little bit last week. All right, so that's the third parallel. Fourth parallel is that, in, this is in verse 19, our author says that for Israel, there is rest... But then he says that there remains a rest for the people of God. 
So now this is another comparison where we have the author of Hebrews talking about a rest for Israel and a rest for the people of God. And this is where it can kind of get a little bit confusing until you sort of like stretch out what he's saying and kind of see the different pieces that he's, that he's prodding at. There's a certain sense in Hebrews in which the land of Canaan was a kind of rest. And by rest here, we're not talking about just like, you know, laziness or kind of sitting around like we would when watching football or something. No, rest, we're talking about peace. We're talking about shalom. We're talking about perfect resting in God's provision, safety, a kind of heavenly happiness picture. And so there's a certain sense in which the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham, was a kind of rest for Israel. But it wasn't the ultimate rest. It wasn't the final rest that Israel was looking for. And in fact, that's the subject of uh, verses 6 all the way through 13, which we're going to look at in just a second. But I just want to point out now, there's a comparison here. Israel receives a kind of rest in the promised land, which is a picture of the true heavenly, eternal rest that all of God's people for all of time receive by faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? And we'll unpack that a little bit more in just a second. But the fifth and final comparison that our author makes uh, in verses 9 and 11 here of chapter 3, he says that he warns Israel to be faithful and obedient. He warns Israel to be faithful and obedient. And then here in chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, he warns the church also, his New Testament recipients, to be obedient and faithful. So he tells them they need to be obedient and faithful in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Okay? So we've got the same emphases here, the same things. Our author is stressing the same things. What Israel went through is the same thing the New Testament believers are going through. All right? Now, that brings us to the second point here, which is rest for God's people. And this is where we start to see why these comparisons are important. Why is it that the author of Hebrews is bringing out all of these things Well, here's what he wants to do, right? He wants to show, as I said before, the continuity of redemptive history. He wants to show God's plan of salvation is one plan. It's not that Israel was saved in one way and Christians are saved in another way. No, they're both saved by Christ through his death on the cross by faith, okay? So we need to see that. And that's why he's showing these comparisons. And now he's going to draw these comparisons out into a much more stark and strong way by showing that the rest for God's people is the same for Israel as it is for the church. And he's going to draw this out here. So, as I mentioned before, this is coming from verses 6 through 13. Look at, uh, let's see, which verse is it? Verse 8. Listen to what he says about Joshua. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, this this discussion that our author is talking about here in chapter 4 is still part of the Jesus is superior to Moses section. Okay, And that's because Joshua 
in, in Hebrew literature is considered to be basically an extension of the ministry of Moses. Because Joshua basically came in and did what Moses was supposed to do. Moses was supposed to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and conquer the land and, and divide it among the people and all that. But Moses couldn't do that because he sinned. And so God wouldn't let him enter the land. So Joshua had to be raised up. And so Joshua came about and he did this. He fulfilled what Moses was supposed to do. And so Joshua brings the people of Israel in to the promised land. He brings them into Canaan. And Joshua is a super important figure in the Old Testament. Right? He's a warrior. He's a brilliant battle commander. You just read the book of Joshua. You can see he's a military genius. So he's a battle commander. He, he led the people of Israel in Jericho right? when the walls fell down. And like that's a pretty major event in terms of Israel taking over the land. Uh, and, and Joshua also was involved in covenant renewal ceremonies as well as allotting all of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel, determining the boundaries and saying, all right, you, Benjamin, you get this land over here, and Judah, you get this land. I mean, you can see, Joshua's a pretty significant figure. Now, Joshua, under the leadership of Israel, comes in, he takes over for Moses, he gives the people of Israel the promised land that God promised to Abraham when he made the covenant with him hundreds of years before. That's pretty significant. And yet, what does our author here say about the ministry of Joshua? Jo Joshua, if he had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That is, Joshua did not bring Israel, the true rest that they were seeking when he brought them into Canaan. See, this is a mistake not only that the Jews made, but this is a mistake that some Christians today make oftentimes. When they start to say that, well, you know, Israel is all about the land of Israel. Israel's all about Palestine and Canaan. And that's what God has. God has all this stuff planned for Israel, and it's all about the land. No, that's, that's not the point. That's not the point at all that Hebrews is trying to bring out here. Hebrews is trying to say, look, guys, yes, the land of Canaan was awesome. It was a kind of rest for them. But it wasn't the ultimate true rest. There is a greater rest coming. And here's what our author says about it. Right? He says, God would not, if, if Joshua had brought rest true, lasting rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so what, what Hebrews begins to explain here is he explains that God spoke of a rest for Israel even after they were in the promised land, even after they were in Canaan. And he does that here by quoting a bunch of verses from Psalm 95. And, I don't know, and this is something that the author of Hebrews brings out that maybe we would miss if we weren't carefully thinking about it. But Psalm 95 was written by David. Now David was alive after Israel came to Canaan. In fact, David was alive hundreds of years after Israel came to Canaan. He was one of the kings of the nation of Israel. And when David wrote Psalm 95, he calls Israel to faithful obedience to Yahweh, lest the people of Israel fail to enter God's rest. 
And so what Hebrews is bringing out for us here very clearly is he's saying, David proclaimed to Israel when they'd already been in Canaan for hundreds of years that there was a greater rest on the way. That Canaan is not heaven for them. Canaan is not the great city, the great land of happiness and blessedness that God had promised. Now there was a greater land coming. A greater place. A greater city. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. This is in chapter 11. And I'll read verses 13 through 16. So this is again our same author. Listen to what he says about this. He says these, that is the Israelites, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now the these that the author of Hebrews has been talking about is the saints of the Old Testament. People who lived and died in the land of Canaan. And what Hebrews brings out for us is that even those people, Abraham, for example, Abraham's explicitly mentioned in Hebrews 11, even those people knew that the promised land, the land of Canaan, was not the true, final, ultimate promised land. There was something greater that God had planned. And our author in Hebrews 11 calls it a heavenly city. And he's speaking there about heaven. Or about the new heavens and the new earth. The true rest for the people of God. See, there's no city. There's no land here on earth that can provide rest for God's people. No, there is a greater rest that was earned for us. By the Messiah. And Israel, according to Hebrews, knew this. The gospel was preached to them. And they were not looking to Canaan as the final rest. They were looking forward to the heavenly city. That would be the rest for the people of God. And so this is why our author in verse 9 says this. Now listen to this statement. This is important. He says, So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so here he's driving home the point that Israel was waiting for God's Sabbath rest. They were waiting for the final ultimate rest that wasn't Canaan, but that was something greater and beyond it. And so just as they were waiting for that, So we, right now, in the New Covenant, are also waiting for God's Sabbath rest. Now, there is a certain sense in which we experience God's Sabbath rest right now. Because this is the the great reality of the already and the not yet. Just as Christ has come and he has paid the sin debt and he's accomplished for us peace with God through his work, so we can experience a kind of spiritual Sabbath rest in a certain sense Because some of the realities of the future, of the new creation, have been brought here into the present by the work of Christ 
as he has justified us and he has declared us holy before a righteous God. So there's a certain sense in which we do experience some aspects of the great rest that we await in heaven. But that does not mean we experience all of the realities. We have yet to see much of the promises and much of the, the greatness that God has prepared for us. For example, our resurrection bodies. Right? We don't have resurrection bodies. We are not yet perfectly sanctified. We still have the old man and the new man fighting within us. Right? We don't yet see the new heavens and the new earth. We are not yet with Christ. We do not yet behold the face of God. So there are many realities of this eternal Sabbath rest that we still await. And that, by the way, just as a side note, is one of the reasons why the Sabbath has not been completely removed for Christians. It has been altered slightly. Right? We've changed the Sabbath from the last, the seventh day of the week to being the eighth day of the week. And there's reasons for that, like, for example, the eighth day of the week in, in the Old Testament is symbolic of the day of future realities. And that exactly is the work of Christ, to bring future realities to us right now, right? So we still have a Sabbath today, a day of worship and rest, just like in the Old Testament, but it's still changed slightly with the work of Christ. But nonetheless, the Sabbath is not completely removed. It's still here. We still await the full fulfillment of what the Sabbath signifies, because we do not yet have the full consummation of what the Sabbath proclaims to us. We don't have the full experience of Sabbath rest. And so our author says, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God that we look forward to, just like the Israelites look forward to it. We're looking forward to the same thing, the great rest that Christ has brought to us. That's the gospel. Israel was waiting for that. We wait for that too. That's what he's saying here. And so to drive his point home here at the, at the end of our section in verses 11 through 13, our author concludes this major point about Jesus' superiority to Moses and the Exodus by giving us some final exhortations. And we could sort of call this application points. This is how we apply these truths to our lives here. Verse 11, here's what he says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So within this exhortation, there are three application points. Three things that the author wants to drive home here after making this point, that we are yet awaiting the same rest that Israel was waiting for. And here is what he says. First of all, verse 11, don't turn away from Christ. Don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness who rejected the great things and the blessed, gracious things of God. Press on toward that eternal Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God. Don't turn away from Christ. And we talked about some of these warnings last week. We'll keep bringing this up. These are real warnings given to Christians. Don't turn away from Christ. 
And the Spirit uses these warnings in my heart and in your heart to strengthen our faith and to draw us to Himself. So they're real warnings and they're effectual warnings. Don't turn away from Christ like those Israelites did in the wilderness. Christ is superior to everything. Why would you want anything else? So don't turn away from Christ. Secondly, our author in verse 12 appeals to the authority and the power of God's word. Remember, he's been bringing up Psalm 95 here to apply these lessons to us. Say, don't, don't reject God's Sabbath rest. That's what David said in Psalm 95. He's been quoting that in chapters 3 and 4. And so he's appealing to the power of God's word. That when God's word is proclaimed, things happen. That the spirit works through the word to pierce our hearts and to draw us to Christ. So hold fast to Christ and hold fast to the word. And then the third and final exhortation that he gives here as we finish up is in verse 13. And you can see here, this is actually quite a solemn warning in verse 13. He says, for because, excuse me, that's chapter 3 in a second. Uh, he says in verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And here what he's saying is he's saying, don't you dare think that you will be able to sneak in to heavenly rest without faith. Don't you dare think that you'll be able to just sneak in with your unbelief and your disobedience. You can just sneak into heavenly rest and hope nobody notices. No, God is 100% aware of every heart of every single person. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. Everything lies open and exposed before his omniscient eyes. And this is precisely why our author is so zealous to proclaim to us to hold fast to Christ and to hold fast to his word. Because we need Christ. We can't sneak in to the heavenly rest. We can only be ushered in by the arms of our loving Savior. We need Jesus. We need his word. Hold fast to Christ. He's superior to everything. Why would you ever want anything else? That's the message. Hold fast to that. Uh, are there any questions uh, briefly here as we close up before I close us in prayer? Yes. Yes, thank you. Let me close in prayer and I'll make that announcement real quick. Thank you, Linda. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for... Uh, just a wonderful text here in the book of Hebrews. Lord, we, we rejoice to see that, that your plan of salvation is one and the same throughout all of redemptive history. Lord God, both the saints of old and the saints of the new covenant need Christ. And through your messengers, you preach the gospel to all of your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work this gospel truth deep within us and that it would give us great joy. As we come to worship you this morning, to sing praises to you, to confess our faith together in you, and to hear your word proclaimed. And so, Lord, we pray that you prepare us now for worship. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.